Thank you, Ronnie. We hope we uh, take my glasses off, take the mask off. <laughs> Before we look at God's Word, um, we had, I had talked a little bit about um, a, a new chapter in Shepherd of the Valley. Uh, as the elders, we've been for months uh, been talking about why we are here, why did God place us in this particular place, in this particular neighborhood, where does God want to lead us, where does God want to take us in the future, and uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that our focus, uh, we really want to focus on children, children in our neighborhood, children uh, around us, as, uh, well, into the whole community, actually. And to that end, we've decided to, uh, to take a step out in faith, and uh, we've decided to call on a children's pastor, uh, Don Griffin. And uh, he actually starts today. And so I'm going to ask Don if you're going to come up and uh, just kind of share a little bit about uh, your vision for children's ministry. He'll share a little bit this morning, and then he'll share some more next week, kind of his uh, broad vision for children's ministry in general. So Don, why don't you come on up? I'm a one-hander. Good morning, how are you? I am very glad to be here. As Tommy says, I'm Don. And this is an amazing time in, in, in the church. You know, I want to say in your church, but now I'm part, so in our church. I, um, probably the thing that I want to share the most right now, because the vision part, the, the biggest part of the vision will happen next Sunday and be able to share, as Tommy said, kind of the whole look of things. I've had the opportunity over the years to be able to sh to be able to be involved with children at many different levels, but the process that that the church went through with the elders, the process that God has done here to make it possible that we're able to reach out to children in a very profound way, to me was large. There have been years as I've been listening to the elders and to Tommy of prayer, prayed for children in this area. There have been years of, of, of giving to, Lord, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to reach the kids all around? And that is really spiritually weighty. That is serious. The Lord heard all that. And they asked when, when, not if, but when. I mean, there is a reason that this church is in the middle of all these children and this community. And the Lord was speaking to them about now. It was time now to do this. And in doing so, they felt led to bring me on. I felt led to come on, staff here, and work with the children, that this is the time. And I'm overwhelmingly grateful and just cannot wait to move further and further and further into this because there are children all around and they need Jesus. They need to hear how much he loves them. They need to be saved, their souls saved, them in their spirit saved and start their journey in Jesus and continue for the rest of their lives to follow him and to serve him. While we were meeting, before any decisions were officially made, I was asked by one elder, said, so what do you do first? And I said, well, I'll combine a very large conversation to just nuts and bolts. 
Bottom line is basically the church has one service, so we need to have something for the kids. We need to have something that when folk come in with their children elementary age, we've got something for them. Not anything, something. So we decided that we would do something called Super Church, and there's a handout on that. And it is what it says. It says it's an intentionally gripping, high-energy church service crafted specifically for kids. This is not an adult church service. I mean, this is, but not theirs. It is not crafted for adults to come in, though I would love to have you visit because it's so much fun. It's, it's made for kids, and we use a plethora of means by which to reach them, to share the truth, to have them have an opportunity to be saved. I'm past my five minutes, aren't I, Tommy? No, go ahead. Okay. You're, you're good. Right. You're good. <laughs> you got to keep things, you know. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. That's what he said, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to let any and all children all around this neighborhood, everything that we're going to do, and I'll, I'll share again next Sunday, is with all the kids in the area in mind. The decisions we make, how we do what we do, why we do what we do, is for all of them, not just our kids, not just the kids here, everybody. And we want to see them come. This little handout is good information. Please give it to people. Let them know what's starting in October. Let them know we want their kids to come. Let them know that we have something very special for them. I guess that's what's on my heart. I guess that's what it is. Jesus says, let them come. So where's the church are saying? Let them come. Bless you. Thanks, Don. We, uh, Don said we are super excited to have him here. Um, man of experience and uh, a man who walks with God. And we're just, I'm, I'm just thrilled and I can't wait to see what God is going to do uh, through us and uh, here in Hood River. And so we're super excited about that. Um, don't expect things to just turn around from one day to the next. Uh, we're in it for the long haul. So just want you to be aware of that, that we're in it for the long, the long, the long view of, the, of things. So uh, Don will be back next week to share a little bit more in depth about his vision for children's ministry and um, uh, how you can get involved if you want to get involved and uh, maybe some of the more concrete things that uh, he hopes to, to accomplish. And Don, Martha, welcome. We are just thrilled to have you here with us. And um, so, yeah, let's... I encourage you after the service to get to know him, to talk with him a little bit after the service. Uh, we will include a little bio in the newsletter and, and things like that. But, uh, but take the opportunity to get to know him. You will be blessed. So... Well, let's pray before we look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for, for being here and moving among us. We uh, are so grateful for uh, the music that uh, you provided through uh, so many talented and gifted people. And just to, to speak to us, those, not only the people who play here on the platform, but uh, the words that were written, uh, maybe recently and some words that were written uh, tens and dozens of years ago that still speak to us um, in, oh, that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Father, it has been a long time since it's been well with my soul in a lot of ways, and, and uh, 
it's just nice to know that we can get set firmly on, on the rock that uh, stumbles some people but provides a foundation for others. And we're thankful that we have given you the chance to change our lives. And so, Father, we continue to do that, to give you permission to do that, to change our hearts, to change our lives, to teach us to walk in your way as is truly the way to live, this way to be human, this way to be your child. And so, Father, we are seeking to follow the Savior this morning and pray that that carries on through this week. So, Lord, as we, as we kind of wrap up this, this series, Father, we ask that you make clear as to what you're doing and how you want to use us as a royal priesthood. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to close up uh, this series this summer. Uh, it wasn't just going to be this week, but it's going to be this week and next week. It's one of those, once I got into it, thinking, okay, you know what? I've got to do this in two parts. I can't do it in one part. Um, so, uh, uh, so we'll be doing it next week, too. The Habits of the, of the Royal Priesthood. I want to begin with, with two scenes. Uh, one is this scene. There, most people recognize this. This was uh, called the Miracle on Hudson. Uh, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 hit a flock of birds, and, and it caused the engines to stall. And the pilots, most of you know the story, the pilots, uh, uh, Chelsea um, uh, Sullenberger and Jeffrey, Ch Jeffrey Skiles, I think, was the co-pilot in this, they were able to land the plane in the river without losing a single passenger and very, very few injuries. It was, uh, it was just tr truly a remarkable feat. Uh, so that's one scene. The other scene is done by artists. And this is the scene of Jesus talking with the rich young ruler. It's recorded, a scene recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, you might think at first glance that these two scenes don't have anything in common, but they actually do. In this scene, uh, the rich, run, rich young ruler, if you remember, comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in, instead of, of giving him another list of moral obligations to perform, he says, no, you need to change your life. And he gave him some suggestions, some things to do to change his character so that he will be able to reflect the generous love of God in the world. This is what he was talking about. It's not something that... Uh, not giving him another list of moral accomplishments that he can kind of project on a screen someday and have God look at them and be super impressed by what this guy's done. Jesus is looking for a deeper change than that. How does it have to do with, with Sullenberg, Sullenberger? Well, he was able to do what he did because of a thousand choices he made, a thousand decisions he's made, a thousand years of practice, a thousand hours of practice that he has made so that when the test came, he was able to do it almost second nature, as we call second nature. It's just, he just did what he was trained himself to do. He was able to meet the moment. It was a character change. And these two things have in common because that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. He is getting at this character change. And we've been looking at these, these seven values over the summer that, um, that seem to be universal. They seem to transcend borders, languages, uh, ethnic groups, uh, justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. 
And uh, it's like every human being knows these things are important and knows that these things are valuable. These, these things make up what life is meaning, and we, we, see, we see them as very important. Now, the conclusions may be a little bit different. Some people may say these are just uh, evolutionary um, events that happened. They just sort of happened in our, in our lives, in our human lives, and we just sort of evolved into seeing these things as, as important that they're somehow valuable for the continuation of the species. But I think they say something different. I think they say something that is, a, it is part of our soul, part of our heart, part of what makes us human. And I say that these are values that tell us that we were created by a generous and wise God. And these things point to this generous and wise God that, that, that stamped on us his very image and because of this very image, we think these things are valuable to us. These things are important to us. And we all say these things are important. We say justice is important to us, but we've also pointed to the fact that they are also broken, that they have failed. They have failed us. But better said, we have failed them, actually. That we have fallen short in doing these. We all say justice is important. And as a country, we say justice is important. I mean, you know you know, justice for all in our, in our Pledge of Allegiance. Except when our national interest is at stake. And then maybe we kind of conveniently forget that. Or we say, we want justice for these criminals. Except unless we might happen to end up in court. And then we want mercy, necessary, not necessarily justice. Yeah. So we say they're important, but we kind of conveniently forget them when it's good for us we think. So we have actually failed in the way they do, in the way they work, in the way they operate. Uh, what's interesting and almost eerie is that all these broken values seem to converge on the crucifixion of Christ. If you read the stories of the, conviction of the crucifixion of Christ, especially in John, you start to see how all these broken values sort of kind of come together and they form this composite of who we are but in their purest form, they form the composite of who God is. And so when you see the crucifixion of Christ, you see, you see uh, justice has been trampled on, love has been abandoned, uh, spirituality and worship has been corrupted, beauty has been, has, uh, has been skewed, beauty has been spoiled, freedom has been taken, truth has been challenged, and the power has been abused. And you see it all converge on the crucifixion. And it almost kind of, almost feels weird that this is all happening in one place. But in order for these to work, in order for these things to work and point to God, they have to be mended. They have to be good. They have to come together. And, and they, they are, turn out to be vital. They turn out to be vital, very important things that, that frame who we are and frame who God is. And so it's very important that these things start to become important to us as Christians, as followers of Christ. These things need to define us. They need to define our meaning of life if we want to be taken seriously. These seven values need to mold us and mold our character. And we often think that uh, we have this conversion experience and it happens that, that, uh, that, that moment. Well, Don said something very important. 
that it starts them on this journey, on this path. And it's in it for the long haul. And these things start to, to mold us. And if we seek to tell others about this generous God that we know, if we want to tell others about how Jesus enacted this rescuing love on the cross, then these values need to be part of who we are. Not just so people will know that we mean what we say, but also that this God, this generous, loving God, is actually present with us. So these things need to mold us. They need to define us. Just so people will know that we mean what we're talking about. We mean what we say. It's not just empty words, but also so that God, they'll know that God will be present. The thing is, these values seem out of reach. We just think, oh, you know, real love. We're all looking for true love. We're all looking for, for good justice. And we all think that it's so, 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 you know, we're just so out of reach. We cannot get it. But you know what? They're not as elusive as we think they are. They're not as far off as we seem to think they are. They can be mended by the power of Jesus Christ. By the power of the Spirit, these things can begin to be mended. And we can see them. We can see them in their purest, in their purest state. And the Bible takes these questions seriously. It's okay that we have these questions about it. In fact, you know, we, we, we talk about it, and we talk about longing for them and want them, and yet why is, why is the world so unjust? Why is there ugliness in the world with beauty? Why all these things? And we will start to wonder, if, are, are these the right questions? And I would say, yes, they are the right questions, and most humans have them. Their intuition is correct. These are good questions. And what's great is that the Bible takes these things seriously. And I just want to mention just some, a few encounters with Jesus where these questions came up. And the first one is Nathaniel. I don't know if you remember the story in John chapter 1. Philip wants Nathaniel to meet, Nathaniel to meet Jesus. And so Jesus, and Nathaniel, of course, is very skeptical. He's waiting for Israel to be vindicated. He's waiting for Israel to be free. He's waiting for, to take the yoke of Rome off their neck. He's ready for God to restore his kingdom. And, uh, and, and, but Nathaniel is skeptical. Because really, can this little Jewish rabbi from Nazareth really accomplish this? And he has that great question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, talk about a little bit of, of stereotypic racism, you know? Can anything good come out of there? And so Jesus meets with him, and they had this little bit of a teasing, a little bit of banter going on, you know? And then finally Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that just because I saw you under a fig tree, you're willing to believe? Well... Just wait. And then he has this wonderful truth. He says, you will see the angels descending and ascending in heaven on the Son of Man. What is he getting at here? And when you look at that, you go, well, where did this come from? This makes no sense at all. But if you continue reading through the book, it makes all the sense in the world. Jesus is obviously referring to the story of Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob in the desert, and he had this dream of, uh, we usually know it as Jacob's ladder. It's probably not a ladder, maybe more like a staircase or something. But uh, this vision of angels descending and ascending, and Jacob wakes up and says, oh my gosh, God was surely here, and I didn't even know it. Well, at this time, they're all thinking that heaven and earth meet in the temple. 
And so if you read this, you're thinking, this makes no sense. But then if you go on to chapter 2, you realize John is saying, Jesus is that temple. The temple is being replaced by the person. And then if you go further on in the book near the end, you hear that great, great culmination of, of, of Thomas, his statement, my Lord and my God. And then you go, that's what he means. That does make sense. Then in the person of Jesus, this is going to happen. Heaven and earth will meet. The kingdom of God is within the person of Jesus Christ. We saw the question of the Samaritan woman. And Jesus has this interaction with her, and he kind of plays the weaker end because he wants, he wants a drink of water, but then he reveals to her who she is, and then he reveals to her who he is. And he claims to be the way to cross all those divisive barriers to bring all people in, Samaritans, Gentiles, and Jews, to the same feast. And he says this is this, and he offers this radical way of this incredible thirst that we have for life and love. And Jesus says, I am the one to do that. I offer you this satisfaction. I will quench your thirst for life and love. That's true spirituality. And then there's Nicodemus. His interaction with Nicodemus is, uh, you know, is this guy, Jesus, are you really a teacher of the law? Or are you a heretic? Or are you a, a wolf in sheep's clothing? And Jesus says, okay, let's get down. Let's get to the point here, all right? Let's get to the point. And the point is this, that just because you were part of the religious elite does not mean you will see the kingdom of God that you have to be, he says, born from above. You have to have new eyes. You have to have new heart, as Ezekiel says. You have to have the law written on your heart, not just the teacher of the law. You have to have it on your heart, a new heart, to see the kingdom of God. It takes a supernatural act. It's not just, just uh, you know, topping off a drink here. This is replacing, replacing the nature. This is replacing the heart is what you need. It's not just keeping the law. And then you have the beauty of Lazarus' resurrection. And this is where the political tide really starts to turn for Jesus because Jesus here compares this beautiful life, the beautiful material life that, of the Creator God with the stench of death. And he raises Lazarus from life, and we have this beautiful expression of, of God's creation and we're told in John chapter 1, it is through Jesus that all this was created. This beautiful creation. This, this creation is not, not beautiful because we think it is. It's beautiful because God made it to be beautiful. And it's, he, he has created this beautiful home. It's really an act of hospitality. He has created this beautiful home that we call the world, the universe, and put his creatures that bear his image in it and gave us a place to live. And he confirms that with Lazarus' resurrection. He confirms it with the incarnation itself, and he confirms it with his own resurrection. And then ultimately, of course, we have Pontius Pilate, the interaction with the governor. And I was mentioned last week that if you're just looking onto the scene, you're saying, okay, this is, not, uh, this is not an interaction between equals. This is not a meeting between equals. 
that one is clearly superior. You have, uh, you have Pilate, who is the representative, the governor representative of the most powerful political machinery in the universe right now, in the world, or Rome. And then you have this man who claims to be a teacher, a rabbi, maybe even the Messiah, and he's lonely, he's beaten, he's weak, he's about to be killed. This is not a meeting between equals. But if you read the book of John and you finish the book of John, you say, yeah, this is not a meeting between equals. We have one who represents the empire whose ultimate weapon is death. And then you have Jesus who conquers it. Jesus who wins out at the end. It's not Jesus who's in over his head. It's Pilate who is in over his head. Pilate says, I have the authority to either kill you or let you go. And he says, yes, you do. You do have that authority. It's been given to you. And therefore, you will be responsible for it. So the, the Bible takes all these questions really seriously. And these seven values that we've been talking about, I mean, it's just for our, our clarity's sake. They're not necessarily inspired things that I'm telling you. But these things we're talking about, these give us a new framework for understanding the world. This gives us a new kind of definition, new glasses to see the world, that we understand, okay, why is the world the way it is? We all know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. We all know this in our bones, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet we also know that we have a Savior who overcame it, that he claimed victory over corruption and death. And it gives us this whole new picture of how we view the world. And this intuition that we had about things not being the way it's supposed to be, but these things are important and we think it should be, we were right. Our intuition is right. And this gives us a whole new way of seeing it. And this brings us now to 1 Peter that Ronnie was reading this morning. It brings us to us. How do we mend these values what is our responsibility and he said and peter calls us a royal priesthood and a holy nation now i have to admit we all know theologically we're all saved by grace and it's it's all nothing that we deserve and that's true but we still read these passages and we still kind of and i know about you but for me anyway i kind of take it as uh, we're pretty special you know I'm a little bit more important than everybody else and a little bit morally superior than everybody else. And uh, yeah, so I'm a royal priesthood. But if you listen carefully to what Ronnie was reading, it has nothing to do with privilege. It has everything to do with responsibility. We are a royal priesthood because we have a responsibility, not because we're morally superior, not because we're special, than anybody else. We have a task, a job to do. Now, this could be a calling. Uh, some people call it a calling. Some people call it a vocation. The word that I really like is life work. This is our life work, to be a royal priesthood, regardless of where we go as a job or a career, whether your job is to be at home with kids and in, in the home, or whether your job is in the field, or in education, or in technology, or, or the service industry, the food industry, whatever it is, that is our, that's wherever we are, our life work is basically to be a royal priesthood. As 
whatever, as a teacher, as a farmer, as a technician, as a server, as a cook, whatever that is, our life work is to be a royal priesthood. And so we have, we've got three questions that I want to answer this week and next week. We're just going to look at the first one this week. Uh, what does it mean to enter into the life work of a royal priesthood? What does that even mean? How does the life work engage the wider world? And finally, how does this life work begin to mend these values? So we're just going to look at the first one quickly this morning, and then we'll move on. The, the life work of, um, of the priesthood... I'll, I'll turn the screen off sometimes. I, I figured out how to do that today, this morning, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> so what does it mean to be like? Well, there's two phrases here, royal and priesthood, right? And what does the priesthood do? The priest worship. That's what we do. That is one of our jobs. The thing is, there's a worship aspect of it, and there's a mission aspect of it. And worship and mission are like conjoined twins. They have the same heart. The same heart that loves God, and the same heart that loves the world that God created. Conjoined twins with one heart. And the priest part is all about worship. It's all about, about calling God and telling him where we, how we love him. We celebrate him. We articulate what we love about him. It's like, it's like uh, falling in love on the human level. The beloved may, may want to tell her, if it's a guy, wants, may want to tell her why he fell in love with her, what, what drew him in, what drew him into her, what drew him into her world, what drew him to her. It was maybe her physical beauty. Maybe it was, uh, you know, her gentle spirit, her quiet voice, her generous giving, her peach cobbler, you know. <laughs> That's my own. My wife makes great peach cobbler. What drew us to that? And when we come to worship, when we come to worship, that's what we're doing. We're articulating the things that, that, that God has done, that is doing and will do, that just knocks us off of our feet, that sweeps us off of our feet. That's what we do when we come to worship. We come and tell him why we fell in love with him, why we love him, why he swept us off our feet. And when we get into worship, I mean, we, the worship wars are famous, and some people will say worship needs to be spontaneous. It needs to be, you know, we, it needs to be moved by the, by the Spirit and just erupt out of nowhere. And then other people like the liturgy and like it planned out and, and uh, organized. Well, both are great. Both are great. It's like going back to the, going back to on the human level, a couple, they become friends and they just happen to, to run across each other at lunchtime and they decide for an impromptu picnic. And that's great. But if the, if the relationship just stays at these ever now and then impromptu lunches, it's really not going to go very far. But pretty soon you start to plan it. You start to, you start to uh, organize it. You think, well, let's go and have dinner and you have more time to talk. Or you, you take them to an ice skating ring, you go there, or you go to a, a traveling art exhibit, or whatever, whatever a movie. Um, you know, that might, then you talk about the movie afterward. I actually broke up with a girl once because, we did, because of that. <laughs> we went to go see Sophie's Choice, 
heart-wrenching movie. I like to go and I like to talk about movies. I like to, to, to analyze it and stuff. And we were talking and over, over nachos and, and uh, she says, okay, 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 yeah, she had a hard decision. She had to pick between the kids and I get over it. And I thought, you're not the girl for me. That's what. <laughs> but point is that we plan these things and we move deeper into the relationship. Love becomes thoughtful. And that's what liturgy is. Spontaneity is great, but so is thoughtful love. And whether you're a Pentecostal church or an Episcopal church, you will have liturgy. I guarantee it. We have liturgy. We have this kind of routine that we do. But it's a thoughtful process. It's a thoughtful love. That's the difference. It's not just spontaneous. One of the illustrations I use with couples a lot in marriage is in premarital counseling will be, you know, that, that uh, romance is like the match. You know, you're striking the match. And uh, it's lovely, it's sparky, it's, it's drama, it's dramatic, it's great, you know, it's kind of flashy, you know. And uh, that's what it feels like when you're, you're into romance and you're starting to explore love and sex and marriage and, and it just feels like striking a match. But pretty soon that match, if you just hold it, is going to go out. And then when it goes out, you think, well, I guess our love is gone. But what do you do with a, with a match? You light a candle. And when you light a candle, it may not be as exciting as the match, but it's long-lasting. It can actually become more evocative, more beautiful, more peace-bringing. And that's the same thing with our love with God. Many of us have had dramatic conversion experiences, and it's like striking that match. And you keep wanting to repeat that experience. You keep wanting to duplicate it or maybe even manipulate to try to get back there again to get that match. Well, take the match and light the candle. It's more evocative. It's longer lasting. It's more permanent. And it's more beautiful. That's worship. The other half of that is royal. And the royal is mission. It's... it's an agent. It's, it's being part of a movement, of ruling, actually. And if we want to look at an image, if we want to look at an example in history, maybe, of what it likes to be royal as a Christian, don't look at the emperors of the 4th and 5th century, the emperors that became Christians, Constantine and the people after that. Don't look at their example. Look at the Christians in the first, second, and third centuries. Look at the documents in the New Testament. Look at the church fathers. They show us how to rule in a kingdom of Jesus' way. And what that means is we recognize Jesus as the only true ruler of the world. He will not allow any substitute. Jesus is the one true ruler, the crucified and risen Messiah. He is the ruler. He is the one that we obey. He is the one that we follow. He is the rightful Lord. And with that, we reflect the glory of God in the world around us. We reflect his love in the world around us. 
we look to see the world filled with his glory. That's how we become agents of the true king. That's how we become royal priest. Not just priest, but royal priest. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with privilege. It has a whole lot to do with responsibility. The responsibility, the royal priesthood, is to work to reveal the glory of God in the wider world. That is our life work, regardless of where you are, to reveal the glory of God in the wider world. And we do that with worship, and we do that with mission. We will get more into the, than the nuts and bolts uh, next week. Uh, in England, we have street signs here, but in the UK and Ireland, they call these uh, finger posts because they look like fingers pointing. And they actually originated from uh, things like this. The earliest ones they say is from the 17th century who actually there are wooden carved arms pointing in the direction to go on the road. And you'll still see these, not these, but you'll see these in England to this day. And they still call them finger posts. I always thought that was a funny name when I found that out. <laughs> finger post. Well, that's what these seven values do once they start to be mended in our lives. And don't think that you have to do it by yourself. We do this in the community. And as these things become mended, they become finger posts that point to the Messiah, that point to the way of Christ, that point to the generous, loving God, that point to the new creation that Jesus launched with the resurrection. That this new creation is a time of inviting Jews and Gentiles to the same feast. It is a new creation where there was victory over the dark powers. And all these finger posts are pointing to the way of rescue, of love, of light. John says that he was the, the life that was the light to all people. And through the power of the Spirit, these things, through the power of the Spirit of Jesus, these things begin to become mended. And these values can, can, can start to be mended and demonstrated in our lives, and they become finger posts that point to the generous, loving God, the generous, loving Creator God who sent His Son to enact the love in our midst, to live among us. And by His resurrection, launch this new creation, this new work. And these values are not as elusive as we think they are. They can be mended. And this is our task. This is our life work the royal priesthood, that through word and action, we reveal the glory of God to the wider world, that this is not about escaping creation, this is about fulfilling creation. The life work of the royal priesthood is a responsibility. It is revealing the glory of God in the world. We are going to celebrate communion this morning, and hopefully, um, hopefully you, we're still using these. And when we celebrate communion, we usually read some of the gospel story. This is one of those things that we do in the church as we move along. 
If you did not get one of these, feel free to step up and, and walk outside and grab some. They're out there. There's some crackers for those who are gluten um, intolerant that need uh, gluten-free crackers. There's some out there. But feel free to get up and, and grab a few. Don't be embarrassed. But communion is one of the ways that we do worship and mission. Uh, we are both celebrating what God has done and what God is doing and what he has done. But we are also declaring our allegiance to him as the rightful king. And we are inviting others to taste his healing love. So the details kind of vary from place to place. And here in our church, the details vary from Sunday to Sunday. Uh, we kind of do it similar ways since we've started doing this with, with the COVID. It, it pretty much follows a, a routine that we have to do, but that's just the way it is. But it helps us. We are becoming little by little uh, people who know in our bones that, um, that we are forgiven and that we should be forgiving of others. Um, in the same way that when we eat food, we get energy. When we feed on Jesus in this spiritual way, we have spiritual energy. And that's one of the reasons why we do it. We are a royal priesthood. And so we were gathering all of our praises, all our praises together and offering to God. We we're also gathering all the grief that we have together and we're going to offer them to God. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And so I'm going to read a portion of the scriptures, specifically having to do with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we will read the, uh, the first part and uh, we'll have some time of silent prayer, and then we'll take the bread together. And then I'll read the second part, and we'll have some time of prayer and, I'll, and, um, and take the cup. So first of all, let me read the passage from John 19, uh, verses 6 through 16. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But the Jews insisted, we have the law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside of the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From now on, the Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and set him at the judge's seat and placed him, uh, placed him on the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is called uh, uh, Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of Passover week about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate said? And here comes the most condemning verse of all. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's take a few minutes and just, this is a time of confession. Maybe look back over your week, examine the day, examine the week, and just take the time to say, I blew it here. I blew it. God, forgive me. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this bread that you have, um, that symbolizes your body that was broken. We take this time, Lord, to confess where we have messed up, maybe by will, word, deed, mistakes, maybe just honoriness, stubbornness, pride. Father, we give it to you and thank you for your forgiveness. Help us to pass that forgiveness on to others. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's take the bread together. read from John 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed, and when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive, they are not forgiven. And now Thomas, one of the twelve, did not, was one of the disciples when Jesus came. So he told the disciples, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the nails where, and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. And a week later, the disciples were there in the house again, and Thomas was with them, and through the doors were locked. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here in my hands, and reach out your hand and put it in my side, and stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We're going to take a few moments of silence. And I'm going to ask you to just to ask God, where does God have you going as a royal priesthood? He has sent the Spirit. Where is he sending you now? I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and um, I will be saying a prayer out loud, and then, then you guys will just help us with the music afterward. I'm going to ask you to stand at this moment, and, um, and I'm going to say a prayer. We haven't taken the cup yet, so just in case you're wondering. But go ahead and stand, and I'm going to read a prayer, and I'm going to just take a second and pause after each line. And you can repeat the prayer in your own heart, uh, or a prayer similar to that in your own heart, and then we'll take the cup together. Beloved one who loves me, Help me to see the loves hidden in my heart that keep me from loving you. Help me to see danger 
that is all the more threatening because it unfolds gradually. Help me to see the possibilities that are easily missed because they emerge slowly and subtly. Teach me to freely give what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. And grant me, I pray, the vision of the kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the cup together.